You're listening to Comedy Central. January 7th, 2020. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Trevor Noah, our guest tonight is an investigative reporter whose work is a big part of the reason why Harvey Weinstein is on trial right now. Ronan Farrow is joining us, everybody. (laughs) Also on tonight's show, New York's governor might save your life. Someone is ready to snitch on Trump and everything in Iran is going according to plan. So let's catch up on today's headlines. Let's kick it off with Laurie Lachlan. Some know her as Aunt Becky. Others know her as the star of every other Hallmark movie. (laughs) But now, she's about to be known as the inmate you don't want to mess with. Actress Laurie Lachlan is reportedly preparing for a possible lockup with a prison coach. According to Radar Online, she's learning martial arts and prison lingo. She's facing up to 45 years in prison after pleading not guilty in the college admissions scandal. Okay, wait. She's learning martial arts and prison lingo? (laughs) First of all, what is prison lingo? What, is she gonna be in the prison yard her first day and be like, all right, I'm going into my cell? (laughs) People are like, oh, I can tell you've been here before. (laughs) Also, learning martial arts right before you go to jail is not gonna help you much, right? Because you realize in the beginning, everything they teach you is basic. Right? She's gonna get into a fight, and then she'll be like, oh, yeah, you wanna shank me? Come at me, come at me. Yeah, but come at me from this side, this side. <laughs> yeah, I've only, I only, no, no kicks. I've only, I haven't learned kicks yet. I haven't learned kicks. And who's got the wooden board? I'm gonna break that board. <laughs> By the way, what kind of prison does Aunt Becky think she's gonna be sent to? She's a rich white woman, all right? She's gonna be with other rich white women. Martial arts is not the training she needs to survive there. Yeah, she's gonna get there like, I've been taking karate! And they'll be like, oh, is that why you didn't have time to dye your roots, darling? (laughs) I didn't plan for this. You know what would be funny is if she comes out of prison all hard with tattoos and everything, but then she still goes back to making Hallmark movies. (laughs) Yeah, she'll just be out there like, the true meaning of Christmas is in your heart. (laughs) Now let's put some pudding cups out there and cigarettes for Santa. (laughs) All right, let's move on. Because while Aunt Becky is getting ready to go to prison, Uncle John may be getting to ready to send someone there. This is CNN Breaking News. We begin with breaking news that could tremendously impact negotiations over President Trump's impeachment trial. Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, now says he is ready and willing to testify if Congress subpoenas him. Senate Republican aides are downplaying Bolton's announcement, speculating Bolton is trying to drum up sales for his upcoming book. Wow, this is a pretty big deal. John Bolton now says he's willing to testify at Trump's impeachment. And I bet he's just mad at Trump for starting a war with Iran without him. Cause (laughs) bombing Iran was Bolton's dream. So you can imagine right now, it's like seeing his ex going on the vacation they planned together without him. (laughs) You know, he's like, oh, so now you wanna go to Iran, Trump? Now it's not crazy and expensive? Really, Trump, really? Now, some people are saying the only reason Bolton is willing to testify is because he wants to get publicity for his upcoming book. And wouldn't it be hilarious if he made that part of his demands to testify? Like, have Mitch McConnell out there bring him out like a late-night host? 
Uh, my next witness is a best-selling author uh, here to testify about quid pro quo with Ukraine. And after that, we got a performance by Lizzo. <laughs> All right, and finally, you know how people are saying politicians need to get more hands-on? Well, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, maybe took it a step too far. Well, New York's governor once again became a first responder after a crash on the highway. Andrew Cuomo rescued a man from a partially overturned truck Monday afternoon on a highway in New York City. And staffers shot that video you're watching right there of the governor helping the driver out of the wreck. The man is okay. And this is the third time Cuomo has come to a driver's rescue in the past four years. Okay. It's cool that Governor Cuomo helped that driver, but let's be honest, rescue is a strong word. I mean, he's just half grabbing the thigh. I mean, <laughs> Cuomo is the guy who helps you move your sofa. Like, I got the pillows, I got the pillows. I got this. Now, what's really interesting is this is the third time Cuomo has rescued a driver, which I'm not gonna lie, is a little suspicious. <laughs> I, all I'm saying is if you see Cuomo while you're driving, buckle up. <laughs> Some shit's about to go down. All right, that's it for the headlines. Let's move on to our top story. All over the news, the big story is still about the U.S. killing of Qasem Soleimani, Iran's top general and hottie who used to have a body. Because hate him or love him, you have to admit the man was good looking. I mean, look at him. Look at him. He's like a terrorist George Clooney. Yeah, it should be named People Magazine's sexiest man who's no longer alive. Yeah, take that, Abraham Lincoln. So now that Iran's top commander is dead, where does that leave everybody else? Well, let's catch up on all the latest developments in our ongoing segment, Middle East War Part Two. This time, it's Persianal. <laughs> now, aside from the million or so people at his funeral yesterday, everyone else agrees that Soleimani was a bad guy responsible for death and destruction around the world. He oversaw attacks on U.S. soldiers in Iraq. He helped prop up Bashar al-Assad in Syria. And he was the executive producer of Cats. All horrible things. <laughs> but as bad as Soleimani was, not everyone agrees that killing him like this was a good idea. The same way things only got worse when America got rid of Saddam Hussein, or when America got rid of Muammar Gaddafi, or when America got rid of gluten, because I don't know what it actually is. All I know is once it was gone, everything tasted like shit. <laughs> so there are a lot of people. There are a lot of people questioning Trump's decision. And even some Republicans are lashing out. Republican yeah, Senator Rand Paul said the killing of Soleimani is the death of diplomacy with Iran. You would have to be brain dead to believe that we tear up the agreement, we put an embargo on you, and we kill your major general, and they're just gonna crawl back to the table and say, what do you want, America? Excuse me, Senator? How dare you suggest that America's president is brain dead? <laughs> that is so insulting. Mr. President, why don't you go ahead and educate this fool? President Trump defended himself on Monday, saying the United States is a lot safer now. We'll see what happens. We'll see what the response is, if any. But you've seen what I said our response will be. <laughs> okay, Rand Paul. I, like your barber, owe you an apology. <laughs> now, look, the truth is, it's not that surprising that Trump's response is so muddled and confusing, because he's Trump. What is interesting is how the entire administration seems to be just as confused about every aspect of the situation. For instance, 
starting with the rationale for why they killed Soleimani in the first place. The Trump administration is scrambling to explain the two words that led to all of this, imminent threat. Was the justification this imminent threat? Chuck, it's, it's never one thing. You, you've been at this a long time. The American mm -hmm. people are smart, too. It's never one moment. It's never one instance. It's a collective. It's a, it's a full situational awareness of risk. If you're looking for imminence, you need to look no further than the days that led up to the strike that was taken against Soleimani. When you say the attacks were imminent, how imminent were they? Were we talking about days? Were we talking about weeks? If you're an American in the region, days and weeks, this is not something that's relevant. Okay, like, hold up, man. You can't say the threat is imminent. Then when people ask how imminent, you're like, well, oh, time is irrelevant. <laughs> no, because that's specifically what imminent means. Like, he's acting like we're crazy for asking a question. An attack was imminent, okay? It's like, really, Pompeo? How imminent? Jeez, you guys are obsessed with numbers. <laughs> Get off my back, Rain Man. So America is on the cusp of war. And already, the most basic question, why are we doing it? has been unclear at best. But the fallout has been handled just as clumsily. Because remember, Iraq's government was so mad about this drone strike happening on their soil that they asked America to leave the country for good. Well, yesterday, the US government made two stunning announcements, announcements in the span of a couple of hours. First, they were withdrawing its troops from Iraq. And second, forget that thing that we first just said. Adding to the confusion Monday, the Pentagon circulated a letter announcing a withdrawal of U.S. forces from Iraq. But the Pentagon later said there is no decision to leave Iraq, and it was just a draft. It was a mistake, an honest mistake. Yeah, that's right. The Pentagon released an announcement saying they were pulling out the troops, and then they were like, backsies. <laughs> I didn't take my hand off the piece. I didn't take my hand off the piece. That's not the move. Like, how do you send out a draft military announcement by mistake? These people control nuclear weapons and they can't even handle Microsoft Outlook. How do you do this, huh? <laughs> like, all right, it's time to bomb Iran. Oh, shit, I sent them a referral code to Grubhub. Sorry, guys, sorry, guys. <laughs> so it's not clear why the administration chose to kill Soleimani now. And it's not clear if the troops are leaving Iraq or not. But one thing's for sure, they also don't seem to know what they would bomb next. The Trump administration struggles to put out a cohesive message about how the United States plans to respond to Iran's latest threat. The president is threatening to strike 52 sites in Iran, including cultural ones, which would violate international law. Senior administration officials either publicly contradicted Mr. Trump or said that he had not said what he said. The American people should know that every target that we strike will be a lawful target, and it will be a target designed at the singular mission protecting and defending America. President Trump vowing he's prepared to strike back, though he's now backing down from threats to target Iran's cultural sites. We are, according to various laws, uh, supposed to uh, be very careful with their cultural heritage. And you know what? If that's what the law is, I, I like to obey the law. What? I like to obey the law? No, you have to obey the law. Trump makes the law sound like it's an optional topping at Chipotle. <laughs> Bitch, it's the Geneva Convention, not Pico de Gallo. <laughs> I like to obey the law. But like, come on, how does this administration never seem to be on the same page? Trump says they'll bomb cultural sites. His administration says they won't. Trump says he will, they say he won't. Now he says he won't. It's almost like they have a group chat, but Trump never gets the message because he's on Android. That's what it seems like. <laughs> So, you know, the truth is, as much as we insult the Trump administration, 
at least they're learning from America's previous mistakes. Because in 2003, the Bush administration had a plan to go into Iraq, but no exit strategy. So now the Trump administration is like, ah, I see where we went wrong. This time, no entrance strategy. Lesson learned. We'll be right back. The world is undoubtedly on edge right now, waiting to see how Iran will respond to America killing its top general. But according to some Iranian leaders, we might be waiting for a while. This morning in Iran's capital, the foreign minister saying in a speech, the U.S. will receive the definitive resolute response to its brazen criminal act in a place and at a time it hurts most. Iran is a very patient country. We will take uh, our action after necessary deliberation, but I'm sure that it will be taken at the time of our choosing, not the time of the United States choosing. God damn. <laughs> Iran is a very patient country. That, that gave me chills. It really did. It was, it was like from a t- TV show. Like, I'd be watching 24 and the guy would say that and I'd be like, ooh, lazy writing, but that was effective. <laughs> And to be honest, I wouldn't mind that guy scheduling all my appointments. Yeah, just be like, Trevor will meet you at the time of his choosing. (laughs) Not at the time of your choosing. You have been warned, Comcast. (laughs) Now, the big question is, what do these threats actually mean for Americans? Well, to help us figure it out, we're joined by our own senior national security correspondent, Roy Wood Jr., everybody! What are you wearing, man? I'm wearing protective gear, Trevor. <laughs> Did you not hear that, man? We're all gonna die. Roy, serious. Roy, please, I brought you on for analysis, not fear. Well, my analysis is that there's a 73% chance I'm gonna shit myself. <laughs> it's scary, Trevor. I mean, usually when you get a threat from the Middle East, it's some dude screaming in the cave, but this guy was calm, like an Iranian John Wick. It's like we killed his puppy and now he's coming for us. Well, well, Roy, to be fair, we always knew that Iran was gonna threaten America, but, but what do you think they'd actually do? It's obvious, Trevor. We threatened their cultural sites, so now they're going to attack our cultural sites. Wow, you mean like the Washington Monument or Mount Rushmore? No, that, that's just rocks and shit. I'm talking about <laughs> our actual culture, the Netflix service, the Popeye's chicken sandwich, or, or, killing America's greatest storyteller, Stan Lee. But, Roy, Stan Lee is already dead. Those bastards! <laughs> it's already begun! Beta Victor, Beta Victor, the eagle has fallen. Okay, Roy, 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 relax, Bravo relax, Victor, relax, on. relax. You heard the foreign minister. He said that Iran is a patient country, so it's probably not gonna happen anytime soon. And that's even worse! Because now we're just waiting for something to happen. And if we don't even know what it is, like, like if, if there's a car crash, is that Iran? Or just Cuomo setting up his next photo op? <laughs> or what if our Wi-Fi goes down? Is that Iran? Or did my neighbor just add a password? We'll never know. <laughs> I don't know, man. Cause you see, Trevor, patient revenge is the worst kind of revenge. You remember when your mama said she was gonna whoop your ass, but she didn't say when? <laughs> So now, you're just waiting for an ass whooping all day. And the longer you wait, the worse it gets. Hell, I've been waiting on one ass whooping for 25 years. 
Every time, every time I go home, I'm flinching. Every time, I'm flinching. I told you I'm sorry about the cookies, mama. I was seven years old, Joyce. Roy, Roy, I, I understand what you mean, but unfortunately, this is what it's like when we are close to war. Well, that's the thing, Trevor. If Iran is mad that Trump bombed their general, they should handle their beef directly with Trump. Whoa, 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 Roy, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 you're not... That's me. You're not suggesting Iran attack the president of the United States. You don't bring that shit to my show, Roy. No, listen, chill out, green card. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm just saying that if Iran wants to get revenge, they should just mess with things that Trump actually loves. His hotels. Put bed bugs under the mattresses. Plug the holes at his golf course. Swim in the pools, even though you had diarrhea in the last 14 days. And if Iran really wants to hurt Trump, if they really want to hurt Trump, tell him he's invited to a party full of supermodels. Then when he gets there, bam, it's Eric's birthday party. Wow! You're the real terrorist. Roy Wood Jr., everybody. Stanley, we will avenge you. is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter for The New Yorker, a documentary producer for HBO and best-selling author whose latest book is called Catch and Kill. Please welcome Ronan Farrow. Hey, Trevor. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Before we jump into the book, let's jump into news that is just, like, breaking and we're learning about now. Um... It's funny, the last time you were on the show, you, were, you had written about diplomacy, specifically in and around Iran. We spoke about the topic and how Donald Trump didn't seem to have a plan and his plan could backfire. Are we at that point right now? Seems like I was wrong. It went great, right? <laughs> totally the opposite. It, you know, look, that, that book, War on Peace, we'll plug there, was about the collapse of diplomacy. We are strip mining our diplomatic apparatus. The State Department is not what it once was. And diplomats aren't in the room making the decisions. We're seeing the consequences of that. We threw out the Iran deal. It was not perfect, but it was a shot, a narrow window at preventing what's happening now. When you look at the strategy that the administration is taking now, one that is undiplomatic, it feels like everyone is hawkish in their approach. It feels like everyone sees only one way to resolve this issue. Do you see a way back from this? Because many people feel like Iran has no vested interest in now talking to America. And America, because of its commander in chief, doesn't seem to have a path forward to negotiating with Iran again. Look, we're not going to solve the confrontation with Iran in this segment, sadly. If anyone could do it, it's you, but... (laughs) What I can say is, from a structural standpoint, we have got to re-empower our diplomats. These are brave men and women, the rank and file who keep our embassies running, and too often they are not being allowed to influence these decisions. And if they were, I think we'd have a fighting chance of not fighting. That's what diplomats are for. You have been at the center of one of the largest movements in America. You know, you've never claimed to spearhead it, but you have been writing about some of the most powerful men who have abused power to, in some way, shape, or form, abuse women in and around their lives. Harvey Weinstein, as fate would have it, started his trial today. You've written this book, Catch and Kill Lies, Spies, and Conspiracies to Protect uh, protect Predators. 
Do you think the Harvey Weinstein trial is going to go in the direction that the public hopes, or is he powerful enough to somehow escape again? Look, I wind up saying this a lot. I am a reporter, not an activist. I hope that Harvey Weinstein receives a fair trial. That means a prosecution being tough, the process being organized and respected and not manipulated in Mm -hmm. the way that powerful people so often are able to manipulate those processes. A large part of the reporting in this book is about how Harvey Weinstein narrowly evaded previous attempts to charge him because he was able to hire armies of private investigators to dig up dirt on his accusers and smear them and influence the DA's office. This very DA, who's advancing this case in Manhattan right now, is one of the people who dropped charges against him previously after Harvey Weinstein's lawyers made donations to his campaigns. So, you know, they are trying now. There's a lot of public pressure. I hope they do a good job. But this has been a long time coming, and the track record doesn't make one optimistic. It's interesting because this book is really a story not just about what happened, but how it was allowed to continuously happen. You know, you write in the book about how Harvey Weinstein was caught on a wiretap, you know, how the police heard him confessing to groping a woman. You know, you, you, you read in the book about, about how Harvey Weinstein set up a campaign to protect himself and to threaten people who are coming after him, including yourself, which is a scary place to be in. Did you learn if there is any way to hold people that powerful accountable? You know, the small sliver of accountability that we have now is because the women that you just mentioned were so brave. I mean, yes, I was in the crosshairs of, frankly, a an insane international espionage operation. You know, there were people with false identities following me and two Russian guys hanging out outside of my apartment. And they became sources in some cases eventually because they objected to it. But the only reason we know any of this is because people came forward and they said enough. And overwhelmingly, that's the women who had gone through these terrible experiences and decided to risk everything to speak. We actually have here tonight two of the sources in that very first Weinstein story Uh, And, you know, I think it's a bittersweet moment where this is dredging up a lot of complicated feelings, but Mm -hmm. we're seeing this happen because of them. One of them is uh, that woman that you mentioned who wore the wire and got a confession from Harvey a couple of years years ago, Amber Gutierrez. Another is Rosanna Arquette. These are heroic people who helped us understand terrible crimes. And we wouldn't be having the conversation without them. You know, one of the scary parts of, of these stories, one of, one of the scariest things about, about reading, you know, about the story is, is not just the predators themselves, but it's about the systems that helped enable them to keep on being predators. You know, you, you write in the book about how you went to your bosses at NBC and you said, guys, I have this story on Harvey. And that story was shut down. And they said, oh, you don't have enough. It's, it's, it's not a good enough story. Why did you keep on, even though many of your bosses told you in the news world, oh, there is no story here? You know, we've seen a lot of people go up against their bosses to expose the truth now, including after this body of reporting about NBC, which revealed a lot of misconduct at that company, people on NBC's airs, journalists like Rachel Maddow getting up and saying there needs to be an independent investigation there, which Mm -hmm. still hasn't happened. Look, this was a company with a lot of secrets of its own. Right. It was a company with a lot of alliances with Harvey Weinstein, and I lay out, you know, reams of transcripts of calls that they were secretly having with Harvey Weinstein. But the point is not about NBC. The point is this happens all the time. And I think the moral of the story is you have to keep going. And when sources are as brave as the sources were in this story, there was no room for me to be cowardly. I mean, 
they set the bar really high, and I knew I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if I failed them. Do you, do you think there's, there's been a certain element of the liberal media being protected by being liberal in a way? And I say that because, like, you, you look at the stories that have come out now about Fox News, you know, with Bombshell, the movie, you know, Loudest Voice, mm-hmm. et cetera. The one thing we see there is that at some point, Fox said, hey, we're going to bring in these independent investigators to investigate what has happened here and get to the bottom of it all. As you said, though, it feels like the NBCs of the world haven't been as transparent. They've said, oh, we'll, we'll figure it out, but it hasn't become... A, a real investigation. They haven't gone after everybody who's been involved. And it feels like the accountability hasn't been at as high a level. You know, I mean, you're one of the few isolated people writing about this. Do you think that has something to do with it? it it's interesting. I break stories about Democrats and I get people howling at me on Twitter, you know, you're a, you're a plant for the right. And I right. break stories about Republicans and I get the opposite. We live in these siloed worlds where we're only seeing news we agree with and people aren't conscious of the fact that sometimes you're just reporting on crimes and those don't have a partisan nature to them. And I truly believe these stories that I've been fortunate enough to do reporting on about sexual abuse, no, no party. This is about corruption. This is about the abuse of power. When you you look at these stories, they must have a common thread beyond just the person. What are the, what are the steps that we could take? What are the moments that people missed where somebody could be held accountable, where something could have been stopped, where somebody could have been listened to? Is there anything where you notice in your reporting that that's where society, we're dropping the ball? The story is full of moments where it could have been stopped earlier, you know, where people had taped confessions of crimes and whether they were in law enforcement or they were in the media, they decided it wasn't worth the fight. You know, it doesn't always look like someone uh, twirling their mustache in a dark back room and saying, you know, I'm going to cover up a crime. Usually it's people saying, is it really worth a confrontation? And all these TV executives, you know, Noah Oppenheim, the head of NBC News, just says point blank to me at one point, you know, is this worth the fight? We got to decide if it's worth it. And they decided it wasn't. So I think the moral of the story is it's worth the fight. Powerful, man. It's an insane story. If we weren't living it, I wouldn't believe it was true. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. I hope everyone reads this. Catch and Kill, a fascinating book, is available now. And a new episode of the Catch and Kill podcast will be available next week. Ronan Farrow, everybody. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.